So in the pitch dark, Terry Gross waddled up the riverbed in a wetsuit with leather, leather gloves on his hand. And he said, good morning, gentlemen, state fishing game warden, you are under arrest. Now, you're like, where did that story come from? Let me back up and rewind and tell you. But I had to give you like the best part first, you know. And so um, the game warden, Terry Gross, he's a young man at this moment in his life. This is about 30 years ago. And in the 1970s in Northern California, the rivers were just overflowing with salmon. And so Terry Gross's job was to monitor sort of what's going on with the plant life and the animal life and then to assign, uh, to, to, to monitor and to make sure people don't abuse nature and animals. And so what was happening with this salmon population is that when the sun would set and the temperatures would drop, these salmon would begin to, as you know, they swim upstream, and so they begin to pool in big, huge areas. So fishermen got smart and got wise to this, and even though the, the rule, the law was you could not fish only a half hour after dark, to protect these animals, to keep the ecosystem running, to keep fresh salmon flowing in our waters. And what these fishermen would do is they would develop these dynamite traps, these special snagging traps, because they could get these huge catches of salmon fish. And king salmon weigh from 35 to 60 pounds. So we're talking enormous fishing population in Northern California. And so Terry Gross um, found out about this. And, and then there was an innovation that happened in, with these fishermen. They developed a glow puck lure. So this glow puck lure allowed them to fish late, late, late into the night. And this glow puck lure literally, literally put out into the waters these king, fish, these king salmon would just snap at it every time. And so these fishermen were bringing in these huge catches and so Terry Gross felt there was something to do about it. But the fishermen were smart and had set up watch stations along the Eel River um, in California. But Terry decided that he would put on a wetsuit, that he would literally inside, this is a true story, by the way, that he would literally put a Ziploc bag with his citation booklet and a small flashlight in his wetsuit. And then he put on leather gloves because, you know, he's going to catch these lures. And he headed a mile swimming upstream to bust these fishermen. So as the night gets later and he's swimming upstream, he didn't realize how frigid cold the water would be. And uh, he's six foot four, 300 pounds, by the way. So this is one heck of a man in the, in the mighty waters of California. And as he gets closer in the night, he sees the men's cigarettes, just the, the end of the butt. And he also sees these, these, these glow lures out on the water, and he snags for one, but he misses it. And then he grabs one, and it hooks him. And as he's pulling it, a fisherman yells, fish on! And then he kept pulling and tugging on this lure, and the fisherman says, gosh, this is a big one. And so Terry Gross is pulling this line, and he's trying to get himself up to the bank of the river, and this man says, this is the biggest salmon I've ever caught. And we're talking about a six foot four, 300-pound salmon, right? And so then Terry Gross walks up. Can you imagine being a fisherman? <laughs> Terry Gross walks up onto the shore and says these incredible words. Good morning, gentlemen. State and fish game warden, you are under arrest. 
And when I read this story, I was so amazed at so many levels of this story. And the first thing that really amazed me was the total dedication of this fishing game warden. I mean, who does that, right? I mean, this is intense devotion. And I started thinking about the dedication to his, his own craft, his profession, and this sense of deep compassion he felt for these animals, for these fish. Because, as you know, what these kingfish king salmon are doing, they're swimming upstream to spawn. And so as they spawn, the fish population, the ecosystem, so what happens if these fishermen create these great catches is that you deplete a whole generation of these beautiful fishes. So he had this deep compassion for animals that didn't have a voice in our world, for animals that were being treated unfairly by these fishermen. Um, he writes all these incredible stories up in, a, in this book of stories, and he writes this at the beginning of the book. He says, I hope that you will be able to read between the lines and realize the amount of destruction that takes place daily among our plant and animal communities. And it was like really refreshing to me to see this man with his total dedication and his commitment to protect plant and animals do, do the most wildest thing possible, putting on a wetsuit and swimming up the Eel River. And it, it made me think um, how beautiful compassion is. And it made me think about this compassion that is so important to human life. And the Gospel of Luke um, tells the story of Jesus. And it tells us that compassion is central to the mission of God in the world. And what I find fascinating about this is I still think it's a, it's a minority report in dominant Christianity, but it is everywhere on the pages of Scripture. And, and uh, the, the way it says it in Luke chapter 6, verse 36 is, be compassionate just as your heavenly Father is compassionate. And this Greek verb, it could be better stated more emphatic with words like embody heartfelt compassion as your heavenly parent embodies heartfelt compassion. Or to what we're talking about here, internalize this compassion just as God is compassionate. And this idea in the Christian tradition, in the Christian faith, that, that the central image of God is that of one of compassion. God is compassionate. And I think, um, think with me for a moment, but of all your images and ideas about what God is, and, and I have to confess that I haven't heard enough that God is compassionate. And I haven't let my mind and my heart just meditate on this super awesome reality that God is compassionate. So I wonder what this means. What is compassion? And it's very hard. What does Christian compassion look like? What does it mean? And what does it mean to be a human in this way? We have been working through this series on the eternal internal. And this incredible philosopher said that emotions are engagements with the world that give us insight into the nature of the world. And so we've talked about Arthur Ashe. And his incredible, beautiful way of playing his heart out on the tennis court. And we've talked about that amazing African woman, God bless her soul, at the DMV in Highlands Ranch, who every time you get your, you, you have to go to this horrible place called the DMV, that she calls you sugar and sweetie pie. And that internal kindness within her is her way of dealing with the world. And it's beautiful because it changes the atmosphere around us. Arthur Ashe changes the world. Uh, men like Terry Gross with his compassion for animals changes the world. And so Jesus invites us to contemplate this incredible, beautiful thing that we are to internalize heartfelt compassion for the world. 
And the only way that we can understand what this word means is to look at these central images very quickly in the Bible. And uh, one of the most central images right at the beginning in the book of Exodus, we have um, the Israelites. They are trapped in the bondage of slavery to the Egypt. And this is, this is awful um, grotesque servitude, right, where it's hours and hours of manual labor with no food. And, and then we have this picture of a God who is compassionate and these words— Beautiful, beautiful words that come from Exodus 3-7. They're four responsive verbs of God. I have observed my people's misery. I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings. And I have come to deliver them. Such incredible words of compassion from a God. God is the compassionate one. God's central attribute is one of compassion for humanity. And so you notice God's responsive verbs here, observing and hearing, knowing their sufferings. And what I find so awesome about how Hebrew works is literally it would be better translated, I have come down to bring them back up, or I've come down so that they experience this liberation. And literally coming down meant this physical, tangible reality of God in their midst. And literally this is like this beautiful foreshadowing for us in the Christian faith of Jesus, who is the one who is going to come down and to enter into all the human chaos and to teach us the way of love, the way of compassion, so that we can be brought up out of um, death and chaos and all this uncertainty. So this beautiful passage of this God who is compassionate. Of course, as the story goes, the Israelites are freed from the Egyptian bondage. The God of compassion has come to them. And so what is Compassion, and I was so inspired this week of just thinking about how to define this term, and, and, and it's so unique, right? Compassion is an emotion that leads to an action. And I thought about it, it's just not an emotion, it's just not about feeling. It's about letting your feeling lead you to act for something. So compassion is about feeling the pain of another as if it's your pain and being moved to do something about it. The way that I was thinking about it is compassion is suffering with someone and striving together for a better future. And so compassion is always realized in community. It's not something that me and you sort of get one time and are like, yep, check that awesome uh, virtue off the box. It's something that we're always striving for so we can feel the deep grief that someone has gone through. But then there's this second step of striving together with them to a better future. And so all the examples in the Bible of compassion, in the example I just gave you of the Exodus, that was God had to have Moses with him to strive for the good of the world. And, and this incredible invitation of Jesus to be compassionate is Jesus' invitation for us to strive together with God to be compassionate in the world. I was thinking about um, my kids because that's where I'm at right now, right? Um, I cannot, we cannot get our daughter to eat any vegetables at all. And this is a, a real frustration as a parent. And so um, we're trying to take this mindset of compassion, of understanding this is not what she wants to do, but looking at the long reign of like, we know eating veggies is good for you. And so we are going to strive together with you as calmly and as kindly as we can to this future. And this happens in all our friendships, in all our families. We are caught in this place of acting compassionately, of Suffering with, acknowledging all the frailties and vulnerabilities and unknowns of what it means to have the human flesh and striving for a better future. 
Because don't we all need that compassion at times? Haven't we all been there in our life? Um, and so this, the way I thought about it that I think is helpful is compassion is almost opposite of competition. In competition, it's all about sort of um, who's better, who's, uh, here, I said, I said this really much better here. Compassion is about, um, com- competition places value on individual achievement. People are rewarded for being better, for being stronger, for being talented, for more beautiful than others. And competition creates this division. And compassion is different. Compassion creates unity with one another. It's not that all competition is bad by no means, but just exploring their opposites helps us to understand the role of compassion is to create unity, to create a community in which we suffer with and strive together for better futures for each one of us. Literally, to fight for another person's growth and human flourishing is the idea of compassion. And so the Gospel of Luke, um, not only does it give us that beautiful, internalized, heartfelt compassion, but it gives us these two central stories that I are the most beautiful stories in the Bible. We've heard them from on, but I want to think through their dominant theme of compassion with you really quickly. So a man is, um, is headed down to Jericho, and we know this, this Jericho road is treacherous. It still is today. It's filled with bandits and people trying to, trying to um, get something from wealthy merchants or from poor people who are traveling, for, from the vulnerable. And this man gets robbed. He gets beat up. He gets his clothes taken off him. And as Jesus is telling us this just unbelievable story, he says that the religious leaders of the day, the priests and the Levites walk by and they see this man and they decide to go on the other road, on the other side of the road. And then walking along this road is a Samaritan, which in, um, in the good, to a Jew, good Jewish world, this is, a, this is someone who is other. This is someone who is not like us, someone who is different, someone from a different nationality. There was sort of this like heated uh, deep stereotypes between Samaritans and Jewish people. And it's the Samaritan who uh, picks the man up, who offers him help and healing, takes him to a hotel and pays double the share so that this man can recover and be whole and be healed again. And the story has many beautiful levels that we could explore with one another, but centrally and like primarily this story is, is telling us that God is like the, the good Samaritan. God is one who picks us up in our deep wounds, in our places of pain, and offers us healing. Because God is the compassionate one. And it's like over and over again the Bible is saying, God is one who suffers with us and strives together for this better future. And I think that that is just mind-bogglingly beautiful. That God is the one at all times and all places who says, I will suffer with you and I will strive with you for a better future. And so it calls us to action. And, and that's beautiful, but it also resonates at the deepest places of our human aches and pains. In the second story of the Gospel of Luke, it tells the story of a father and a son, and the son who says, give me my share of the land. Now in an ancient agrarian society, this, this was absolutely suicide to any, to, to any hope of financially being sustainable. Because what the father would have to do is sell off part of his land. And so when a son in an ancient Mediterranean culture told a father, hey, I, I want out of here. I want my share of the land. He was saying to his dad the most disrespectful thing you can say, you're as good as dead to me. And so the, the son, the, the father grieves. No father wants a son to talk like this and gives him his share of his inheritance. 
And the son goes to a foreign land and squanders all this money, goes to the big city, and finds himself feeding the pigs and remembering this land and this, this agrarian farm that he grew up with and remembering his, the parental love that shaped his life. So on his way back, he comes back, he comes back, and before he can even get words out of his mouth, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. So we have this compassion again. And remember, of course, the story has many layers, and we can talk about it for hours and hours, but the idea is this. God is like the father in this story. God is like the parent in this story. God is the compassionate one who, no matter how far you've gone from home, will always welcome you back to home. Because God is one who continues to suffer with us and strive together for a better future for us. God is the compassionate one. And all this leads me to the genre of rock documentaries. My favorite band is The National. This is the lead singer, Matt Berninger. And uh, Matt, Matt lives in L.A., Matt wears trendy clothes. Matt w- writes lyrics that are dark and brooding, mysterious and wonderful. Matt has a younger brother who lives in Ohio with his parents and uh, one day dreams of being a horror film director and uh, is what you would call like kind of, kind of like your lovable misfit younger brother. And so everyone loves Tom But Matt um, is sort of the successful indie rock band. He's part of like the biggest indie rock band right now. And his brother is the one who hasn't quite made it, right? And so in this phenomenal, oh, and rock documentaries, this is the lamest genre ever in filmmaking history, right? Because what it does is say, say, hey, we know you love your rock gods, right? And let me tell you how awesomely cool your rock gods are over and over and over again. And that's lame. There's nothing good about the rock documentary genre. So the national, being the national and indie folk cool, they have to like change that genre up, right? And so Matt Berninger invites his brother Tom to come on tour as a roadie. And, but remember, he's working on tour for his older brother. And uh, Tom just decides to bring the camera along. And Tom is just like, he, he's always bringing the camera out at like the worst possible times. He asks like absurd questions. He has no like understanding of what it means to make this documentary. And so as you're watching this film that actually gets completed somehow, right, miraculously, um, halfway through it, Tom, like, he can't even really do his job as a roadie, right? He drinks too much. His issues of jealousy over his brother come out over and over again. Uh, he, he can't keep it together. And so his brother has to fire him, true story, halfway through the tour, right? And so this, like, dysfunction goes on and on. And then there's this, like, really beautiful, compassionate turn to this whole movie. So instead of being about the national and how amazing they are, this is a story of two brothers. It's a story of two brothers. It's a story of every one of us and how we learn to deal compassionately with our family members and with people that we're closest to. And so um, Matt, the lead singer, after the tour is over, six months after it's over, invites Tom to move out of mom and dad's house and to come join them in L.A. And they, they literally make a room for him. They give him free food and free rent. And they say, Tom, make your movie. You can do this. And it's just so beautiful to me that the older brother, after all of this, is still willing to say, 
you can make this movie. He gives him creative advice. He works through the scenes with him. And he's able to make this movie. And so you have this beautiful picture of this incredible rock documentary of an older brother who shows compassion to his younger brother. And, and the, the movie opens up for us all this question of how difficult it is in our families to show compassion to one another. Because if we're going to really let ourselves suffer with one another and strive together. Sometimes we don't always get what we want when we're striving together. Sometimes my daughter will not eat those vegetables that I want her to eat. Sometimes um, the, the friends, we know that we become so convinced the way our friends should go, and they don't choose to go that way. And it, it's heartbreaking for us. But that's the point of compassion is we don't get to determine that end result. We don't get to determine that's where the storyline goes, and we can still act with compassion. Uh, Matt Berenger did not get to determine if Tom would actually finish the dang movie and stop self-destructing himself, but he stayed with it. He suffered with his brother, and they strived together to make a better future for him. And so um, what I'm saying is Karen Armstrong wrote this beautiful book on the 12 Steps of Compassion, and she says it quite, um, quite scholarly but very helpful. Those who have persistently trained themselves in the art of compassion manifest new capacities in the human heart and mind. They discover that when they reach out consistently towards others, they're able to live with the suffering that inevitably comes from their way with serenity, kindness, and creativity. They find that they have a new clarity and experience a richly intensified state of being. The mystery of Christian faith is that God did something as wild as Terry Gross. God dove heart first into the world and swam against the current of death to show us the way of life. God became what we are so we could, in this beautiful way, share in his life. God's eternal internal is now a possibility for us. One of the most beautiful things that you can ever do is suffer with someone and strive together with them as they build a better future. Sometimes this someone is yourself, forgiving yourself, letting go, being compassionate with yourself. Sometimes it's your spouse, your family, a friend, a neighbor, or maybe someone who's entirely different than you. Or maybe even it's King Salmon. May the eternal internal life of compassion be within you that is in God. Isn't this a beautiful way to live our life. Amen.